Welcome to Committee Corridor, where we slip away from the crowded green benches of the House of Commons Chamber and head upstairs to the committee rooms. Here, members of Parliament work across the political divide to make recommendations to the government of the day on the key issues that we find. These might be stories leading the news, perhaps policies ripe for change, or sometimes holding the government to account for errors they might have made. They matter to us. I hope they matter to you. I'm Tom Tugendhat, I chair the Foreign Affairs Committee, and you're listening to Committee Corridor, where we hear from people at the heart of our inquiries and demonstrate how select committees can influence the arguments and the outcomes of some of the biggest topics today. In our first episode, we heard about the realisation of a threat posed by a large country against a smaller neighbour whose independence they didn't acknowledge. Now, of course, we weren't talking about Taiwan. Then we were talking about Russia against Ukraine. Today, however, we are talking about Taiwan and the threat posed to it by mainland China and why that matters to us here in Britain and to the wider world. With only 24 million people, that's about a third the number here in the United Kingdom, Taiwan is already an important economy. It makes some of the highest end computer chips and, of course, the equipment that powers our phones, our laptops, our cars, and even sometimes kettles and fridges. Most distinctly, Taiwan, as a Chinese-speaking state, is a vibrant democracy. Now, that is unusual, but it makes it only more important. Last year, the UK government set out its position in its UK policy paper, The Integrated Review. In that, it made the case for the tilt to the Indo-Pacific. Now, that means closer relations with the countries in the region, on trade, on the economy, and, of course, on security. And on the Foreign Affairs Committee, we're looking at what that policy shift might mean for us here in the United Kingdom. Now, both China and Taiwan are important trading partners to us, and any conflict between the two would affect not just us, the whole of Europe, in fact, the whole of the world. In a minute, we're going to hear from two parliamentarians who have looked at these issues from an economic and military security perspective. The first is Lord Stirrup, former Chief of the Defence Staff, in fact, Chief of the Defence Staff when I was still serving, who is now a crossbench peer and sits on the International Relations and Defence Committee in the House of Lords. And second, my friend and colleague, Darren Jones, a Labour MP who chairs the House of Commons Business Select Committee. But first, I wanted to speak to my friend, Joseph Wu, Foreign Minister of the Republic of China, or as it's more commonly known, Taiwan. Well, I'm very pleased to have with me my friend Joseph Wu, Foreign Minister of the Republic of China, or as we know it, Taiwan. How does the invasion of Ukraine affect what you think of as the threat from China? Might it make President Xi think twice about potential military action? After all, the Russians have been pinned down very effectively by Ukrainian armed forces. And Taiwan as an island, and a mountainous island at that, could have a much stronger hand in any defense already. Uh, this is a very good question. In fact, this is a question that the people here have been uh, asking ourselves. And I also understand that uh, many of our friends around the world are also asking the same question. They care about Taiwan. Uh, they're considering uh, the possibility that China might launch war against Taiwan as well. Uh, what we see is uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine unprovoked. And this is a situation that is totally intolerable. And therefore, for the Taiwanese people, we need to join the international community uh, like the UK, the United States, and etc. to condemn the Russian action. 
and also to apply sanctions against Russia. We want to make sure that none of Taiwanese products is made into the Russian weapons. And other than that, uh, we are also trying to uh, help the Ukrainians, uh, especially those refugees uh, dispersed into the neighboring countries. Uh, and another thing that uh, we have been looking very hard at is how the Ukrainians defend their territory, defend their country. And since Taiwan might also be attacked by China, and therefore it's not just the Taiwanese government, but also the people in general, uh, looking at the war situation in Ukraine and see what we can learn from it. And the Ukrainians' very brave actions in defending their homeland is something that we are learning from. And this is the first lesson. We are asking ourselves to see whether we have that same determination to defend our country. And I think the answer is yes. And the people here in Taiwan are more determined to defend ourselves against any kind of invasion from China or from any other country. And furthermore, we are also looking at uh, the tactics of the Ukrainian people in fighting against uh, the Russians, and they employed asymmetric warfare. Uh, they employed asymmetric warfare, and that seemed to be very effective. And therefore, we are also asking ourselves whether we are ready to fight a war that is going to be asymmetrical, and we are also discussing how we can align more with the like-minded countries to seek more support when there's going to be a crisis. And these are all what we have been learning. It's quite noticeable, actually, when you look around the world, who has been supporting Ukraine and the connections that this obviously puts towards Taiwan, countries like Japan and South Korea, countries which are not traditionally uh, very critical about actions in the European neighborhood have joined in the sanctions very actively. Do you think this points to a growing understanding of the threat of border changes by force around the world? Do you think this points to a greater understanding of Taiwan's position? Uh, yes. What happened in Ukraine is an authoritarian country that claimed its historical glory, and they want to take over another country right uh, next to it. And this might happen to the Indo-Pacific as well. And we want to be able to defend ourselves if another authoritarian country, which is China, wants to cross its border to attack another country. And there's a real possibility. If you look at the Chinese actions in East China Sea, they have been sending their fleet to the disputed area or the areas claimed by Japan and Taiwan almost on a daily basis. And that provoked very sharp reaction from our Japanese friends. And if you look at the Chinese actions in the South China Sea, that is also appalling. They claim the whole area, they claim the whole body of water as their own territory. And they have been sending their ships or their airplanes to patrol the area as if they own the place. And their claim over Taiwan is also something that uh, very similar to the Russian claim of uh, Ukraine or other parts of Eastern Europe. And this is something that we need to watch out very carefully. And we should not let what happened in Ukraine happen to uh, anywhere in other places in the world. Now, it's quite noticeable that there's been a bit of a change of tone in the United States, at least from the, uh, from the, from the mouth of the president. While the administration keeps saying nothing's changed, President Biden has made uh, several times now uh, comments that are much more supportive of Taiwan and uh, seem to offer promises to assist in the defense of Taiwan that are clearer or appear stronger than many of his predecessors. What do you what do you make of his comments? And do you think this ends the longstanding position of strategic ambiguity uh, 
in the defense of Taiwan. We try not to jump into the U.S. domestic debate. What is useful for us to know is that the United States is highly committed to the security of Taiwan. Uh, and what we know about is that the United States is uh, by, by the Taiwan Relations Act and six assurances. And they want to provide the necessary support for Taiwan to be able to defend itself. And that is set out in the Taiwan Relations Act. And in this regard, we have been interacting very closely with the United States to make sure that uh, what Taiwan needs for uh, self-defense is being provided by the United States. And we also engage in very critical way uh, so that the United States can provide us with knowledge, training, services uh, for Taiwan to be able to defend itself. In this regard, I would say that the United States is committed to the status quo of the Taiwan Strait. And that is the same policy of the Taiwanese government. We have not been ruled by China and Taiwan is the democracy. And this is the status quo across the Taiwan Strait for a long, long time. And this is the reality that we want to safeguard. We don't want Taiwan's democracy to be tarnished by the People's Republic of China. Well, look, it's, it's interesting you talk about the support you're getting from the United States to maintain as you rightly put it, the status quo. Where do you see the UK and other countries contributing? Because the UK doesn't actually have defence links with Taiwan at the moment. Would you like this to change? Would you like to see, I don't know, defensive weapons procurements, training, joint exercises? Do you think these things would benefit Taiwan? Do you think these things would benefit the United Kingdom? Uh, yes, it would. Uh, but let me talk in more detail on how the UK has been uh, paying attention to the Indo-Pacific already. Uh, for example, uh, your Foreign Secretary, Lee Strauss, uh, has been saying publicly about the situation in Xinjiang and also about the security over the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and the recent uh, revelation about the Xinjiang human rights violation, she said that the UK stands with our international partners in calling out China's appalling persecution of Uyghur, Muslims, and other minorities. We remain committed to holding China to account. And on Taiwan's security, she said that we need to preempt threats in the Indo-Pacific, working with our allies like Japan and Australia to ensure the Pacific is protected. And we must ensure that democracies like Taiwan are able to defend themselves. And in the last couple of years, we see that the UK has been paying more and more attention to the peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. I believe that you have an integrated policy review with uh, Indo-Pacific tilt last year. And ever since then, uh, the UK has been sending very strong signals uh, to say that uh, there's uh, interest to maintain peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. The UK even sent aircraft carrier battle groups to this region to demonstrate the UK's determination to uphold the peace and stability in the region. And I think this is the right attitude. And the interactions between Taiwan and the UK government has also been uh, much closer than before. And we would like to take on this train to improve our relations further, to make sure that the UK is providing uh, the necessary support for Taiwan. And the UK, I would say, that has been providing necessary support for Taiwan already. And in terms of the material support for Taiwan, that would also be highly appreciated. But in defending Taiwan, I would like to point out that the self-defense is our own responsibility. And we would like to defend ourselves. And we are determined to do that. And if the UK is going to uh, provide us with the necessary support, that will be highly appreciated. 
we're seeing great changes at the moment where Chinese involvement in places like the Solomon Islands is growing and the pressure on the countries that support Taiwan uh, is increasing. How do you see Australia, the UK and uh, the United States' involvement in the South Pacific alongside other countries who've been helpful in the past, like Japan? Well, I think all these like-minded countries are paying attention to peace and stability, not only in the Taiwan Strait, but also in a wide Pacific area. For the United States, the UK and Australia to work together under AUKUS uh, is a great thing because all these very strong alliances uh, is paying attention to the peace and stability in the Pacific and by working further with each other, I believe AUKUS is going to provide a very strong force to ensure that the Indo-Pacific remains free and open. And if you look at what's happening recently, that is something that we really pay attention to. Uh, you mentioned about the Solomon Islands. Indeed, the security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands is something that would alarm us. And after all, the Solomon Islands is only about 2,000 miles away from Australia. And the way I describe it is right at the doorstep of our great friend, Australia. And therefore, we need to see the motivation of the Chinese government. And my way of understanding is that the Chinese government is uh, having an ambition far beyond the first island chain or far beyond the Solomon Islands. Look at its foreign minister Wang Yi's tour to the Pacific Islands eight islands altogether. And the purpose of it is to sign uh, security agreements with all these countries. And these kinds of ambition demonstrated by Wang Yi's tour to the Pacific is something that we need to worry about. And AUKUS happens to be an instrument or a platform that can counter the expansion of authoritarianism. Look, thank you very much for talking about AUKUS like that. I think it's, uh, I think it's a huge opportunity for the United Kingdom, for the two partners, of course, but actually for the wider region. But it needs to be more than a club for nuclear boats for Australia. It needs to bring in others. I wonder whether you see areas in which we could share technology as well, because of course, Taiwan's position is not just strategic in the sense that uh, the independence of the island is, is key to um, the liberty of many uh, other countries in the region. But of course, through your semiconductor technology, through so much of the products that you manufacture, you're actually in many ways, the keystone economy of a global economy. This is a real challenge for all of us to make sure that your independence is maintained. Do you think that uh, there's an opportunity for a UK-Taiwan economic agreement that could see that situation prosper? Do you think it could be done with others too? Uh, yes, we hope there can be further discussions on our bilateral investment agreement or even beyond this bilateral investment agreement. Uh, after all, uh, the UK is a great trading partner of Taiwan. And if you look at the economic strengths of Taiwan, uh, it is something that not many people around the world understand, but it is something uh, that I hope that the British people can understand. Uh, the semiconductor is just one. Uh, if you look at the ICT products, uh, Taiwan is a very significant player. And other than that, in the uh, biotechnology, Taiwan is also a very significant player. And in terms of a semiconductor, Taiwan has been producing around 90% or a little bit more of the high-end uh, semiconductor chips. And if Taiwan is attacked or Taiwan is taken over by an authoritarian country, you can fully understand the kinds of impact it's going to have on the rest of the world. Uh, let's flashback to the war in Ukraine. The Russians' attack against Ukraine uh, now created an international economic uh, slowdown. 
and also possible food crisis and also energy shortage. And if Taiwan is attacked by China, I'm sure the economic impact on the rest of the world is going to be much more significant. And if you take into the consideration of Taiwan being a democracy, standing on the front line, and I think that is going to hit our belief system, it's going to hit our values. We believe in freedom, we believe in democracy. But what China has been doing is trying to expand its authoritarian force into the wider region. And they want to change our mentality, they want to change our cognitive to shape the international community to its own belief system. And this is something that we must stop. If you look at what they have done to Xinjiang, we may not have a chance to stop them. Look at what they have done to Hong Kong, and it's already too late for us. And we should not let China do something similar to Taiwan. And Taiwan has the determination to defend ourselves, not because it's our territory, it's our homeland, it's our people, and it's our democratic way of life. We also understand our responsibility. We need to be able to defend ourselves because the rest of the democracy are also looking at us. You raise hugely important questions there. And just, if I may, with one last question, broaden this out to the wider world. There are countries, as you know, around uh, around the world that have been extremely supportive of Taiwan's position, and there are others which have, uh, as you correctly identify, been bullied into, into changing it. Um, one of those countries is Somaliland. Now, it demonstrates, I think, an interesting uh, element that the independence that you seek, the, 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 or rather the, the autonomy that you seek, is something that has become an example for many other states. Do you see that there's more that the UK can do to assist with the partnership of development that Taiwan has demonstrated? And do you think that this is something we could use to reverse what has now become quite clear as a rather negative form of debt trap that we see from the Chinese Communist Party's policies in global affairs? Uh, I think this is a very important question. And it's an important question not just for Taiwan, but for many other parts of the world. Um, you know, If you look at uh, the debt trap, it's a problem for many countries. Uh, look at the situation in uh, Sri Lanka. Now the country is on the brink of collapse. And China is trying to uh, provide assistance in the name of assistance to other countries in the name of uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And that put many countries in serious debt. And that is something that uh, the UK or uh, EU or the United States, Japan, and et cetera, need to work together to counter the malign influence of the Chinese government. And I think you are very right that we need to watch out how that authoritarian country is using its influence worldwide. Other than a debt trap or a debt trap diplomacy, they are also weaponizing their trade. You know, I, I spoke about Taiwan, East China Sea, South China Sea, and uh, the wider Pacific. Uh, maybe the Europeans may not uh, feel it very strongly, but the Chinese influence may be coming closer and closer to Europe. Look at Lithuania. China just used its trade as a weapon against Lithuania just because Lithuania wants it to have a representative office relations with Taiwan. And think about the future. If China is able to divide and conquer each one of our democracies, then it's going to hit home very hard sometime in the future. And I think what we need to do is for the democracies to work together 
to support each other to counter the bad influences of the Chinese authoritarianism. Well, you very, very wonderfully brought in uh, our joint friend, uh, Gabriela Slansbergis there, the foreign minister of Lithuania, who I know speaks very highly of you. Uh, and I know you're uh, full of praise of him. So it's, it's, it's a lovely way to end. My friend Joseph, look, it's, it's lovely to speak to you. Foreign Minister, thank you very much for joining us on Committee Corridor. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for inviting me to speak. In a minute, we're going to hear from two parliamentarians who have looked at these issues from an economic and military security perspective. The first is Lord Stirrup, former Chief of the Defence Staff, who is now a crossbench peer and sits on the International Relations and Defence Committee in the House of Lords. And second is Darren Jones, who chairs the Business Committee. He's also a Labour MP and sits for Bristol North West. Lord Stirrup, what do you think the UK's objectives should be in its relationship with Taiwan? And how should we balance these with our relationship with China? Well, I think that the first objective that the UK should have is to ensure that the while maintaining the status quo between Taiwan and China, uh, we do not actually let the situation degenerate into a full-blown international conflict, because of course that would be disastrous for all concerned. But one of the best ways of ensuring that is to enable Taiwan to defend itself effectively enough so that China, the Republic, People's Republic of China, recognizes that the cost of any military conflict with Taiwan uh, will be far beyond anything that it is prepared to bear. Now, of course, that leaves a whole lot of questions unanswered, but that, I think, should be the overall strategic objective. Darren, you've clearly been looking at Taiwan as a, as a business center as well as a strategic partner. How do you see the balance between the relationship between China's imports into the UK and Taiwan's essential supply of semiconductors, amongst other things, for the UK market? Well, the Taiwan-UK relationship for imports and exports is is very significant. And as you just alluded to in your question, Tom, semiconductors is one of those critical supply chains for a whole host of industry in the UK, whether it's cars or even hair dryers and washing machines, lots of kit has semiconductors in them. And Taiwan, along with South Korea now, basically produced all of the world's supply of the most complex silicon microprocessors, which is a type of uh, semiconductor. Uh, and so maintaining those supply chains is crucial. We've had some problems already this year, which is starting to have an impact on British manufacturing. We heard earlier from Foreign Minister Wu about the parallel between Ukraine and Taiwan in terms of defence and how they're studying the tactics and the implications of an invasion. I wonder, Lord Syrup, whether you've been seeing similar parallels, and despite the uh, 100 miles of sea separating Taiwan from mainland China, whether you've seen any parallels for the lessons that Taiwan should be learning uh, on its defence against a, a larger and more threatening neighbour. Well, there are some parallels, but there are also some significant differences. So I think the, uh, the Taiwanese need to be careful not to prepare to fight the last war. Uh, that's always one of the great dangers in such a situation. The two key differences, of course, are that stretch of water separating it from the mainland. That is uh, a significant difference in, in the tactical terrain, if you like. But the other is the, the length of supply chains between Taiwan and the rest of the world and the countries that might support it. In Ukraine, the crucial factor has been the supply of weapons and munitions and indeed training to the Ukraine armed forces. Uh, that, of course, would be uh, rather more problematic 
in the event of a conflict between the PRC and Taiwan. On the other hand, crossing that stretch of water and mounting an amphibious operation is a substantial military challenge, quite different from the ones that uh, Russia has faced in the Ukraine. So I think the key lesson for everyone to draw, and particularly for China to draw, is that entering into a conflict of this kind is a very uncertain venture. Uh, nothing is for sure, and that no plan survives first contact with the enemy, and therefore it would be a very, very risky undertaking. You have clearly been at the heart of our defence relationships for many, many years. Do you think that the UK should be doing more to supply weapons to Taiwan to make sure that it deters and doesn't just have to wait for resupply? Well, I would like the UK and other countries to be able to do more, but we have a fundamental problem to address ourselves first, and that is the industrial capacity necessary to produce the weapons, not just to supply Taiwan, not just to supply Ukraine, not just to refill our own stockpiles, but to bring those stockpiles up to where they really need to be, which is much higher than they have been in the recent past. One of the key lessons from Ukraine for all sides to learn, or to relearn, perhaps would be a, a better way of putting it, is the ferocious rate of consumption of munitions in uh, high-intensity warfare. Well, of course, the shell shortage in 1914 was uh, the, the first major lesson in that, but it seems that the Ukrainians are teaching us again the end law problem. Yes, uh, but of course, it's much harder today because sh you can turn out shells quite quickly, but complex modern weapons take a long time to produce. They take a lot of industrial capacity, and of course, they rely upon a lot of high-technology components, uh, some of which flow in the opposite direction. Well, that's exactly where I was going to come, because, of course, we are very dependent on the semiconductor industry in Taiwan. And Darren, you've been looking at how the global shortage of microchips has been affecting the UK. How important is Taiwan's semiconductor industry to the global economy? And how important is it indeed to Britain's defence industry? Well, it's, it's, it's crucial, uh, given that uh, Taiwan has pretty much most of the world's capacity for the production of semiconductors. We do well in the UK in terms of designing uh, semiconductor technologies uh, and looking at kind of research and development now university partners but we don't have the capacity in the UK to produce the kit in the way that companies in Taiwan do indeed this is a problem for the European Union as well as for the United States and the commission and the federal government as well as ours are all looking at their supply chains because of concerns around that but we're already starting to see an impact in key sectors um i mean there've been 100,000 fewer cars made in the UK for example in the past year which the relevant trade body, the Society for Motor Manufacturers, has put down to the supply of chips that go into you know, our, our clever cars that we produce these days. And we've seen it in lots of other sectors as well. And so it's absolutely crucial that we're able to continue to keep that supply of semiconductors coming out of Taiwan. Otherwise, it has a direct impact on our manufacturing capability in the UK, both for export, but also for our own defence technologies, which is crucial not just to the UK, but to our NATO partners. Well, this really feeds into what Minister Wu was telling us earlier, which is that uh, the impact of an attack by China on Taiwan would have a much more significant economic result than Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What might conflict there or Chinese control of that industry mean for the UK's economy? Well, clearly, if China were to control the export of semiconductors from Taiwan, they could put very significant restrictions on the number that are exported, which would halt our ability to be able to manufacture some of the most advanced bits of kit that we need, whether it's for civilian or defence purposes. So it's really a strategic risk for the world, but also for NATO, if we don't have that capacity either by 
ensuring that Taiwan is able to continue to supply into our relevant defense and civilian companies, uh, but also uh, making sure that we have resilience within the EU, the UK, the US and other countries to be able to make the kit if we need it to do so ourselves locally. Well, you, you talk there about resilience. Of course, one of the key areas of resilience is the working with partners in the region to defend ourselves. And Lord Stirrup, you'll have seen in uh, recent years the development of the AUKUS deal, the Australia-UK-US deal, which is really at this stage mostly about Australian nuclear-powered submarines, but has suggestions of a greater level of cooperation. We've seen talk of the Quad, the Five Powers Defence Agreement, and even the Five Eyes Alliance growing. Do you see the US as fully committed to the defence of Taiwan? Certainly President Biden has been making statements in that direction, but then had his staff reiterating that actually the position in Taiwan hasn't changed. What do, what, what do you see is going on there? Uh, one could argue that this adds very nicely to their long-standing strategy of strategic ambiguity. So I think it, the situation is still ambiguous. With regard to AUKUS, I think this is a very important development because if you look at the situation more widely, China is bent on reshaping the international order to suit itself. It's happy to live in a rules-based order, but it wants the rules made by China. They, of course, would uh, be inimical to our interests, uh, and therefore we have to fight against that. We have to ensure that China's attempt to rewrite the international order is met uh, vigorously and successfully. And to do that, we need to muster the degree of international cooperation that will be able to field sufficient economic, technological, and military strength to counter that of China. So those kinds of relationships, those kind of partnerships are absolutely crucial. It's not just AUKUS. It has to be done much more widely. And I think what's happened in the Solomon Islands is a very worrying indicator of things going in the wrong direction, and we need to reverse that. Well, your, your reference to the Solomon Islands picks up very strongly on a point that uh, Foreign Minister Wu was making earlier. So I'm very grateful for you mentioning it. It certainly indicates the the understanding that the Chinese state has had for many, many years, that small countries that vote in UN elections actually have a disproportionate amount of leverage on the international uh, and in international affairs. And certainly the Solomon Islands, as you know, as part of that outer island chain, has been an important strategic landing point for, for Australia for many, many years, and therefore part of our defensive network. But perhaps I can turn to you, Darren, and ask, what is the best response? Should the UK, should the West look to become more self-resilient? Do you think it's possible? I mean, what can we actually reshore? I mean, Lord Stirrup was talking about making sure that we increase our stockpiles of the weapons that we sadly might need. Is that an opportunity to actually have an industrial strategy that reshores not just the weapons, but actually the technology behind them? Well, if you look at what's happening today on industrial collaboration between allies, it's either non-existent or wholly inadequate. Uh, you know, the UK is currently in ongoing arguments with the European Union over the Northern Ireland Protocol, which essentially means that everything else is on hold, whether it's related to these types of issues or energy security. Our relationship with the United States is not strong enough on industrial collaboration where there is a national security overlap. And beyond pure defence procurement, you know, AUKUS or other multilateral relationships are not currently looking at the need for closer industrial collaboration on these issues, both for defence purposes, but also as a secure part of our economic development in the years ahead. So something has to happen on this urgently. Our inquiry on the business committee will be looking at what is happening between the EU, the UK and the United States, because the European Union's announced a significant amount of funding 
for semiconductor capacity in the EU, likewise in the US, and the UK government is looking at it. But if we in the UK think we're going to be able to reshore and end-to-end production capacity from design to manufacture to installation for semiconductors, then we don't really understand what's happening. It'll be very, very unlikely that the UK will be able to do that. And just as a last question, Darren, we should also be surely looking at our own companies and their ability to uh, survive. I mean, certainly you and I have raised the question of the Newport Wafer Fab in the past. And how do you see the implementation of the National Security and Investment Act going forward? Because protecting British industry in order to maintain resilience is surely an essential element to maintaining our defence breach. Yes, which is presumably why the government have legislated to update their powers. And in many ways, actually, this is the first example of an alignment from a regulatory perspective between the UK and the United States. The United States have a similar framework called CFIUS. Um, But to answer your question directly, we don't know yet how British ministers are going to use that legislation, which is quite broadly drafted, but ultimately comes down to whatever the business secretary at any given time thinks about a particular scenario. Newfoot Wafer Fab in many ways is a early symbolic test case as to how ministers will intervene or not, and how they balance national security with inward investment. And it's a you know it's an important test case. The colleagues in the United States have raised this issue directly with President Biden and with the UK government. And we're going to figure out over the next weeks or months how it's going to work in practice. Well, they've raised it directly with me as well. I, I was wondering, Lord Stirrup, is your is your military net as well alive to this issue? Yes, I, I mean I've been listening very carefully to what Darren said, and I agree with it uh, w- with him. We can't possibly onshore everything that we need to do, but one of the key lessons of Ukraine is that we need a much greater degree of national resilience, and providing that is going to be extraordinarily difficult. So you've talked about New- Newport Wafer Fab, and I agree with that. But my question really is: Do we have a national strategy for national resilience, or are we approaching it piecemeal? Because if it's the, if it's the latter, then we're very unlikely to be successful. Well, Lord Stirrup there, you're raising a very important question and one that goes beyond our conversation on Taiwan, but certainly builds on it. So I think I'll throw that over to Darren for his next report. And at that point, say, Lord Stirrup, thank you very much indeed. Darren, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. I am Tom Tugendhat. I chair the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and you have been listening to Committee Corridor. Now, next time, I'll be speaking with Oliver Bulow an investigative journalist and author who has written extensively on financial crime and how London has become a favoured place for Russian oligarchs to launder their money. Now, we'll be discussing how this has been allowed to happen and what can be done to stop it. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you.